Welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. While ostensibly a geographically and culturally neutral term, the word revolution carries with it an undeniable European connotation. When visualizing what a revolution looks like, it is admittedly difficult to parse our expectations away from an Occidental-centric image. Whether you prefer the image of an American Minuteman, a French sans-culotte, a mutinying Russian soldier, or even the case of the famous musical and later film adaptation of Les Miserables, images associated with revolution rarely venture outside of the West. Even the hit podcast series Mike Duncan's recently concluded Revolutions, for all of its amazing strengths, perpetuated the association between revolution and the Occident as his series never ventured outside of Europe or the Americas. Establishing this perception of revolution as a strictly Western phenomenon is crucial because, well, we are about to break it. The Sokoto Jihad, or perhaps more appropriately, the Sokoto Revolution, is among the single most consequential events in West African history, an absolutely crucial phenomena for anyone interested in understanding the region to study. But, like any other earth-shattering event, it did not occur in isolation. In fact, the ideas and concepts that mirror revolution have a long history in the Islamic world. The Arabic word, tajdid, does not translate literally to revolution. Rather, it's typically translated into English as renewal, or sometimes rejuvenation. But, in practice, when tajdid enters the political arena it can resemble the concept of revolution. Like a revolution, Tajdid may be peaceful or not even necessarily overtly political at all. Some of the most famous examples of Tajdid in Islamic history were not performed by political leaders at all. The writings of the famous scholar Muhammad al-Bukhari, for example, are often considered to represent the beginning of a revolutionary period of Islamic scholarship that placed a large emphasis on the verification of the validity of Hadith or quotes attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, in the 9th century AD. The bringer of Tajdid is referred to by the exclusive and prestigious title of Bringer of Renewal, or Mujadid, a concept associated with a prophecy in Islam that a new hero would arise each century to bring renewal to the religion. So, while they're not exactly synonymous, the concepts of Tajdid and revolution overlap extensively, especially when Tajdid is applied to the political arena. In the early 19th century of Qasr Hausa, this is exactly what would happen. A young, obscure Fulbe scholar would become the impetus of a movement that would topple the old political, social, and religious order and usher in a new period of Sahelian history. For these achievements, his followers would declare that he was the Mujadid of his era. His name was Uthman Danfodio. Part 2. Uthman, student and teacher. Uthman Danfodio was born in 1754 to a wealthy family of Fulbe merchants. The exact location of his birth is still a mystery to this day. Fodio's family had an extensive, centuries-long history in Kasarhausa, being descended from some of the earliest Fulbe migrants to call the region home. While the place of his birth is a mystery, 
The place where he was raised and formed into an adult was Degel, a city in the kingdom of Gobir, one of the greatest and most important kingdoms in Kasarhausa. Of all the major Hausa cities, the Gobir capital at Alkalawa was located the furthest to the north. This northern position made Alkalawa unusually vulnerable to foreign invaders, specifically the nearby Amazigh kingdom of Agadez to the northwest and the kingdom of Borno to the east. Due to its exposed location, the city developed a unique reputation for its militancy among Hausa states. Soon, Alkalawa had even began expanding its influence well beyond its city walls, becoming the capital of one of the largest kingdoms in Kasarhausa. Gobir possessed the largest standing army in the region. Men from noble classes were called upon to serve as cavalry, with the riders and their horses wearing iron chainmail or plate armor covered with a thick quilt armor called lifida, which offered not only increased protection against projectile weapons, but also stopped their metal armor from making direct contact with the sun and overheating. Meanwhile, peasant and enslaved soldiers were typically deployed as infantry, either spearmen or archers. Strangely, while firearms were a known commodity in this part of West Africa, they were never really adopted in a major military capacity by any Hausa city-states. Firearms in Kasarhausa were mostly used as civilian hunting weapons and for personal self-defense. And sometimes Hausa kingdoms incorporated small numbers of musketeers and riflemen into their armies. But if you're expecting large armies of thousands of firearm-wielding infantrymen, like in the Ashanti, Daume, or Walo kingdoms of West Africa, eh, that didn't really exist in the Eastern Sahel. Now, there is one very big, very interesting exception to this, which is the Emir of Zinder, the king of a city-state in northern Kasarhausa, who did raise an army composed almost entirely of musketeers. So, if you want to learn more about the Emir of Zinder and his enslaved musketeer army that shook up the political and military status quo of late 19th century Kasarhausa, then please support us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. And to those already supporting the show, a heartfelt thank you. Gobir put its impressive army to use against numerous enemies in the mid to late 18th century. In 1750, the armies of Gobir defeated and conquered one of the other major kingdoms in the area, the Kingdom of Kebbi. Samfara, another kingdom known for its military might, also fell to Gobir in 1762. By the end of the 1770s, Gobir had mounted campaigns against almost all of its neighbors, including the major kingdoms of Kano, Katsina, and Borno, extracting tribute from them in the process. While Gobir was mostly known for its martial reputation, one of its subservient cities of Degel was an exception. The city was home to the largest Islamic university in Gobir, and therefore became the academic and intellectual hub of the kingdom. Uthman Danfodio's parents clearly possessed a strong interest in their son's education, as they would take full advantage of Degel's status as a college town. From a young age, Fodio's parents made sure to read with him regularly. He was also given two private tutors, one who gave him lessons in grammar and literacy, while the other provided education in Islamic thought, theories of morality, rhetorical theology, and legal studies. After several years of steady progress with the young student, this second tutor decided to take a break from work to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. In his place, the boy's parents hired a new tutor, a man whose impact on the young Uthman Danfodio's outlook and philosophy is difficult to overstate. This was the radical and eccentric Sheikh Jibril ibn Omar. Not much is known about the career of Ibn Omar before his tutoring of Danfodio. 
Historians generally seem to agree, though, that he wasn't Fulbei, and he was likely either ethnically Hausa or Amazigh, that he was working outside of Qasar Hausa in the city of Agadez before coming south to Gobir, and that he was likely kicked out of Agadez because of his unorthodox views. Anyways, despite being only in contact for little more than a year, the charismatic Jibir ibn Omar played a major role in reshaping his teenage student's perception of Islam and the world. Unlike the previous orthodox and relatively mainstream scholars that Fodio had learned from before, Omar held numerous fringe views. As stated earlier, the sheikh's views had gotten him into trouble in the past. Notably, these were his numerous harsh criticisms of the kings of Qasar Hausa and Agadez. Omar pointed at and criticized their extravagant wealth, their preference for individual judgments over Islamic legal opinion, and, most of all, their common lapses into traditional pagan religious practices. Remember, while Qasar Hausa was by this point ostensibly Muslim and home to large centers of Islamic Orthodox thought, the old ways still held sway not only in the countryside, but also in the palaces of the king. It wasn't uncommon to see, for example, a sarki of a Hausa city-state pray towards Mecca and attend mosque frequently, but also to hire pagan court magicians to provide supernaturally obtained wisdom and imbue him with spiritual power. Omar was outspokenly critical of these practices, and called on other committed Muslims to rise up against their rulers if these practices continued. Now, we know with retrospect that these calls obviously didn't go anywhere, but years later, after his attempted calls for uprising had failed, he did manage to land this tutoring gig, which found him at least one open ear in his student, Uthman Danfodil. Fodio did not accept everything Almar preached uncritically. Especially in the later days of their tutoring relationship, the young man and his tutor frequently clashed over certain contentious topics of scholarship. Some examples of disagreement between the two included polygamy. Fodio viewed polygamy as acceptable, while Almar believed that it was highly sinful to have any more than four wives. Almar was also very strict in his opposition to the social mixing of men and women while Fodio did oppose the mixing, but saw it as not necessarily bad in and of itself. Maybe the most contentious issue was Jibril ibn Omar's belief that ostensible Muslims who did not follow all the rules of the faith should be considered disbelievers and excluded from the Islamic community. This view, which remains incredibly fringe among Muslims today, was not one which Fodio agreed with. Rather, he was committed to the mainline view, that Muslims who struggled with following the faith's guidelines were just that, struggling Muslims, people who needed guidance, not ostracism. This disagreement eventually culminated in a heated exchange in which Fodio accused Ibn Omar of being the true unbeliever by being so willing to label others as such. Regardless of their disagreements, Omar did indisputably have a strong impact on the views of Fodio. One of his most lasting influences on the young man revolved around the practice of Sufism. So, Sufism is a very complex topic. Entire series of university courses are often dedicated to understanding the details of what Sufism even really is. Needless to say, I cannot possibly hope to adequately explain the concept on this show, but it's such a major element in the life of Uthman Danfodio and the Sokoto Jihad that it would be impossible to tell the story without mentioning it. So, the usual disclaimer, please look into this topic further. It is absolutely fascinating, and I can't hope to cover it here. With that said, let's get into the abridged summary. Let's start by stating what Sufism isn't. Because it ends with, 
ism, many, many people outside of the Islamic world tend to make the mistake of assuming that Sufism is a religious sect, a third entry in the Sunni-Shia dichotomy. Additionally, in the early days of the U.S. War on Terror, it became common for American media to try to paint Sufis as the good Muslims, a contrast to the evil, more terroristy Muslims. Both of these assumptions are misleading in their own ways. So to start, Sufism is not a sect. Sufis come from and have played a major historical role in every denomination of mainstream Islam. Nor does the term refer exclusively to gentle, hippie Muslims to contrast extremist groups. Rather, Sufism refers to a method of practicing Islam, one that focuses more on internal and esoteric religious matters. In practice, this manifests on an emphasis on behaviors like meditation and asceticism in addition to regular Islamic practices. Sufis also organize themselves into tariqa, or Sufi orders, which disseminate the teachings of old religious masters to students. The exact practices advocated by these orders vary a lot, but the brotherhood that concerns us is Qadriya. The Qadri Sufi order is itself a complex topic to grapple with. The Brotherhood, like many other Sufi orders, does not necessarily advocate a specific, singular doctrine. The doctrine supported by individual members of the Brotherhood can vary a lot by region and organization, making it hard to say with confidence what impact his local country lodge may have had on Fodio's theological, social, and political views. But what is more important to note for our purposes is that the social element of the Lodge, that is, the connections he made with Qadri Brotherhoods, would prove very politically expedient in Fodio's later career as a revolutionary. Perhaps the strongest influence of Qadriya, and Sufism more generally on Fodio, was his belief in forms of mysticism. On numerous occasions throughout his life, Fodio was guided and influenced by visions he experienced, both while awake and asleep. A Muslim scholar more skeptical of the mystical teachings of Sufism may have written off these visions as mere dreams or hallucinations, but Qadiriya taught Fodio that God will sometimes reach out to humanity through these means, and that it would be foolish to ignore him when he does. Despite the major impact that he had on Fodio, Jibri ibn Omar was only his teacher for a short time. Over the next several years, Fodio would receive instruction from a series of more orthodox scholars, and as a result, his views did moderate over time, leaning closer to the fold of traditional Islamic orthodoxy. But he would maintain the rebellious streak planted in him by Jibril ibn Omar for truly the rest of his life. Throughout the remainder of his youth, Fodio continued to absorb the ideas of reformist and conservative Islamic scholars alike. One of the thinkers that Fodio read extensively was his contemporary, Sidi Mukhtar al-Qunti, Conti was an enormous academic celebrity in the late 18th century Sahel, the member of a famous dynasty of great theological thinkers. His books and manuscripts were staples of academic libraries throughout the Sahel, including those in Kasarhausa, where the young Fodio got his hands on them. He also was lucky enough to attend some of Conti's traveling lectures. While Conti's work would influence Fodio in numerous ways to myriad account, the most obvious way was in his views on Sahelian history. Conti argued that, since the 14th century, Sahelian Islam had been stuck in a gradual but steady degeneration. He attributed the start of this degeneration to the rule of Soni Ali, the Songhai emperor who was equally famous for his impressive military skills and infamous for his non-committal attitude towards the Islamic faith 
and maltreatment of Islamic scholars. According to Conti, with brief exceptions, the rule of Sonia Ali had started a trend in the Sahel of corrupt, decadent rulers who increasingly neglected their religious duties, exploited the population through heavy taxes and a lack of charitable spending, and persecuted devout Muslims in an effort to win support from pagan allies. These corrupt rulers were allowed to maintain legitimacy through the support of corrupt Muslim scholars, who willingly looked the other way when it came to their royal patrons' unsavory actions. Fortunately, Conti predicted that this time of decay was coming to an end, that a new generation of devoted Muslim scholars like himself were finally beginning to turn the tide against the nominalist elites by continuing the advancement of divine knowledge. And, in maybe the most interesting element of his theories, Conti believed that this resurgence in Islamic theory was changing the trajectory of Islamic history more generally. In his view, the proliferation of Islamic scholarly thinking in the Sahel, combined with what he saw as a decline that was going on in scholarly rigor in other parts of the world, was making the Sahel the new center of global Islamic theology. While the Middle East would surely maintain its position as the heart of Islam, where God's revelations were delivered to the prophets, West Africa would soon take its place as the brain of Islam. He even went so far to claim that, of the last five men he believed to be the century's mujaddid, all of them had either been born in or done most of their work in West Africa, including himself. Yes, he lauded himself as the mujaddid, and given the impact of his beliefs that last until this very day, maybe he had a legitimate case to make. This idea of the Sahel as the new center of Islamic discourse and thinking would profoundly influence the later actions of Uthman Danfodil. But Conti's works kind of have a tinge of something that can feel somewhat familiar to modern academia, a sort of insular self-importance. The sheikh basically stated that since Sahelian Islamic scholarship was undergoing a revival, Sahelian society writ large was surely bound to follow their religious leaders towards a good and righteous lifestyle. Even though his treatises are often about the relationship between Islamic scholars and the royalty of the Sahel, Conti offers shockingly little in terms of a political call to action outside of academia. The recommendations he makes mostly revolve around what ought to happen in the madrasa and the mosque, not the palace or the farmstead. Othman Danfodio, on the other hand, absorbed much of Conti's worldview and ideas, but would notably mold his views to support the foundation of a concrete and material political theory. As Fodio's son would later phrase it, My father showed how the law ought to be reconciled with reality, and how reality ought to be reconciled with law. Uthman Danfodio shifted from the role of student to teacher in the year 1774. The 21-year-old Fodio began essentially as an adjunct professor, teaching classes at a variety of universities, mostly working short-term lecturing gigs in the cities of Kebbi, Akalawa, as well as some smaller madrasas in large towns, specializing in Arabic grammar and legal studies. Fodio retained this career for the next 16 years uninterrupted. Initially, he was met with intense resistance from his fellow scholars. Many accused Fodio of being self-seeking, a grifting careerist in the making. Others, on the other hand, attacked his ideas as being too naive, too critical of religious innovation, or, to some, not being critical enough. According to the later writings of that same son, this criticism was motivated by the fact that Fodio's charismatic and young firebrand personality, as well as his popular beliefs in Islamic revival, were making him more popular with students, sparking envy in other academics. 
But I'm not going to lie, I'm a little suspicious of this narrative. I don't know, something about, I'm not wrong, you're just jealous because the students like me better, comes across as a little bit too convenient to me. Academics love to denounce each other over relatively minor disagreements today, so I don't think it's crazy to think they do the same in the past. Especially when you consider that there were no set-in-stone ethical guidelines in universities back then. So, what was Fodio teaching that got the other instructors so riled up? Well, shockingly, it was not his religious beliefs that really got their goat, but more so his beliefs about government. Uthman Danfodio's religious teachings were, contrary to popular belief, not all that new or unusual. Rather than representing a figure who brought Orthodox Islamic practice to a people who had never heard of it before, what made Fodio's beliefs unusual for 18th century Qasar Hausa was that he sought to apply his religious beliefs to matters of economy, politics, and law. One example of such a derivation was on the matter of how law should be applied. The mainstream consensus among Islamic scholars of his day was that there are two types of law, sharia, which is law derived from the divine will of God, and fiqh, which represented the rulings and judgments of Islamic courts and scholars. Now, everybody, including more conservative scholars, were willing to admit that, in theory, fiqh was fallible. It is, after all, based on human judgment, and therefore cannot, by its nature, be a perfect emulation of God's divine will. But Uthman Danfodio claimed that, in practice, fiqh was often treated with far more reverence than it deserved. Scholars were unwilling to take the risky career move of criticizing the rulings of well-known jurists, and therefore, fiqh that Fodio viewed as questionable at best often remained in place far longer than he thought they should have. Fodio claimed that, since everyone knew that fiqh was fallible, that scholars should be more willing to publicly criticize rulings they disagreed with. This attitude, favoring the open expression of criticism of existing legal institutions, also applied to the area of government. Fulfilling his own recommendation, Fodio widely and passionately criticized the ruling Sarkis of Qasar Hausa. While most famously, he would often call out the continuing reliance of nominally Muslim leaders on pagan soothsayers and magicians, this actually makes up a shockingly small portion of his objections when you read his works. Most notably, he focused much of his criticism on the economic behavior of the kings of Qasar Hausa. In order to pay for his enormous army, the Sarki of Gobir had to levy enormous and crushing taxes on the peasantry and merchants alike. He also raised funds through seizing land, even when the seizure of that land was prohibited by Islamic law, as well as widespread bribery in the legal system, and a general stinginess when it came to spending on non-military budgets. Also, despite Islamic law forbidding the taking of Muslims as slaves, it was not uncommon for the Sarki to look the other way when Muslim prisoners of war were bound into slavery. The other Sarkis, desperate to keep up with Gobir and other large military powers, engaged in similar behaviors. Folio's criticism remained quite tepid in his early years. After all, many of his students were the children of the very kings he criticized but they would gradually blossom into a more radical critique over time. In the words of a poem he composed criticizing the house of nobility, Some ills are tattoos on the faces. Others are crying over the dead. Sometimes are the salutations made. Thou shalt not salute while standing. Some of the ills are the capture of a free Muslim, then followed by his enslavement. From its ills is that the shari'at does not prevail. The people do not distribute estates in accordance with law. 
One of its ills is performing prayers without washing. They never pay taxes on their herds. Another ill is that women do not learn. Their body is never covered properly. Some of them have their aprons loosely blowing. Oh, these people are on the wrong path. Despite resistance from some fellow scholars, Fodio continued to rise in importance within the academic community of Degel. By the eighth year of his career, many of his writings were even being used in textbooks, not only in Degel, but in much of Kasarhausa. Soon, Uthman Danfodio was no mere nameless adjunct professor, but an intellectual celebrity in his own right. As Fodio's intellectual reach expanded beyond Degel, students and fellow scholars began to flock to Fodio's lectures, interested in hearing and learning from the man. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This small group of disciples formed the early building blocks of the Jama'ah, or congregation. The Jama'ah were the steadfast students of Uthman Danfodio, eager disciples who adopted the teacher's worldview and sought to put it into practice. The Jama'ah was unique in that it largely cut across the ethnic and class lines of Degel. In an effort to ensure that his message was not only heard by fellow academics, Fodio made the decision to write many of his treatises in Fufulde, rather than Arabic since Arabic was a language only understood by the wealthy and educated classes. His movement was not as ethnically homogenous as you might expect. While the movement did have a sizable membership of urban fulbe in its ranks, the Jama'a's appeal kind of fell flat when it came to the pastoral, rural fulbe nomads. After all, Fodio's political message was focused on things like illegal land annexation and tax evasion on animal herds. To the pastoral fulbe, Land annexation was not especially concerning, while the refusal to collect taxes on herds actively benefited them. Meanwhile, Fodio's theological message fell equally flat to the rural Fulbe. I mean, why would they be interested in a man urging people to adopt the prayer methods and theology of Sunni Islam and the Qadariya? Pastoral Fulbe and their communities were already doing these things anyways, so why should they care? Rather, the early Jama'a was largely composed of urban people, especially the middle classes. These included craftsmen, merchants, and, crucially, soldiers. Remember, Gobir was the most martial society in Kosarhausa, so the military was one of, if not the single largest industry in the area. While high-ranking, wealthy officers and nobles were generally not too interested in his message, Fodio's teachings caught on enormously with the lower-ranking infantry. Many of the lower- and middle-class soldiers were already associated with the Calderia, so the leap to Fodio's conception of Islamic practice was not a distant one. Unlike the pastoral Fulbe, though, this did not hinder their willingness to join the Jama'a, as they were heavily impacted by the un-Islamic government of Qasarhausa. Members of the Jama'a could be identified in the street by their headgear. Men wore a simple, extended turban called an alasho which covered not only the top of the head, but also reached around the bottom of the chin. The Alasho became popular due to the encouragement of Uthman Danfodio himself. 
You see, in 18th century Qasar Hausa, the more widespread and popular way for men to wear turbans was to simply tie them around their head, leaving the jawline uncovered. Fodio saw this as a harmful innovation, which betrayed the traditional value of the Alashot turban as a clothing device meant to convey modesty, and encouraged his followers to cover their jawlines. He also warned against another popular practice, using large, extravagant turbans to convey wealth. Since the Quran forbids boasting about wealth or dressing to convey wealth, these pimped-out turbans were a perverse loophole, which Fodio deeply despised. One of the earliest members of the Jama'a was Uthman's younger brother, Abdullahi Danfodil. Abdullahi, like his elder brother, was also a prominent scholar. Unlike Uthman, Abdullahi was less concerned with the study of theology and philosophy, and more proficient in the practical study of Islamic law and politics. Basically, if Uthman was the equivalent of a philosophy or theology PhD, one who happened to have an interest in politics when the question of how to apply his ideas came up, then Abdullahi was poli-sci, and maybe with a minor in philosophy or theology. Throughout his career as a revolutionary, Uthman would make great use of his brother's political knowledge, while Abdullahi would often turn to his brother for theological guidance. For now, though, Uthman Danfodio desperately tried to avoid political controversy. Despite the often overtly political nature of his teachings, Uthman branded himself as a simple, apolitical scholar, while aiming to avoid circumstances that would create controversy. To further his branding as an apolitical figure, he typically shied away from invitations to meet with kings and nobles. After more than a decade of teaching and growing his notoriety, though, there eventually arose an invitation that Uthman could not refuse. The Sarki of Gobir himself, a man named Bawa, had sent out an invitation to Islamic scholars throughout his realm, including, of course, Uthman Danfolio. The intention of calling this meeting varies depending on the account. Some claim that the Sarki was making a good-faith attempt to reach out to the Islamic community, while others claim that it was initially part of a plot to assassinate Fodio, but that Bawa changed his mind at the last minute, or that the assassin Bawa had picked for the job refused to go forward with the plan. Uthman was initially quite hesitant to attend the meeting. He had briefly met Bawa about eight years prior and had a short conversation where Uthman urged the king to rule in a manner that matched Islamic law. Given that the king hadn't called to meet with him in eight years afterwards, and the rumors of planning an assassination, we can assume that he didn't take that too well. Abdullahi, though, ever the politico, convinced his brother that as the Jama'a kept growing, it would be eventually necessary to meet and reconcile with the political powers. If Uthman sought to avoid controversy, though, he did a lousy job. At the meeting with Bawa, the Sarki started to hand out gifts to attending scholars, a thinly veiled attempt to win their appreciation through monetary patronage. This had been the norm in Qasar Hausa for as long as anyone could remember, so, of course, all the other scholars accepted the gifts without hesitation. Uthman refused his, causing a bit of confusion in the meeting. Now, again, depending on which version of events you believe, at this point, Bawa either developed a burgeoning respect for Fodio, or realized that with both assassination and bribery failing, he realized the only way to control Fodio and his growing faction of followers was through political promises. According to the writings of the king's vizier, Uthman Danfodio made a number of demands to the Sarki, including a prohibition of the enslavement of Muslims, freedom for residents to convert to Islam if they choose, and the abolition of all excessive taxes and the seizure of land. Shockingly, Sarki Bawa unconditionally accepted. Not only did he agree to all of Fodio's demands, 
but he even went so far to make the scholar the top official religious authority of Gobir, while sending his nephew, a young man named Yunfa, to study under Fodio as a student. Judging by the suddenness of his heel turn, it seems that Bawa's motives were likely cynical. Maybe he saw the Jama'a as too big of a threat by this point, that it wasn't worth it to take them on, even if he wanted to. Or perhaps he viewed Fodio and the Jama'a as less of a threat and more of an opportunity, that he could use good favor with the Jama'a as a tool to further his own political interests. Or on the other hand, maybe new matters had recently been put on his plate that made the squabble with Fodio seem like small potatoes in comparison. Recently, the army of Gobir had started to wage a war in an attempt to capture the city of Katsina. Gobir's armies had besieged the major city and been turned back in humiliating fashion. During the battle, Bawa's son, one of the key commanders in the fight, was severely wounded and died shortly after. When you consider all of the turmoil in Bawa's life at this point, the death of his son and an enormous military defeat, it makes a bit of sense why he would be willing to push smaller issues like Fodio and the Jama'a to the side for now. Regardless of why it had worked out, attending the meeting had undeniably paid off as Abdullahi predicted. With official endorsement from the state, the Jama'a continued to grow in size. And, in a further indication of his success, Uthman Danfodio was finally promoted. He was raised to be the head of the local Qadariya order in Gobir in 1789, earning him the title of Sheikh, or Sheikhu in Hausa, a title that literally means elder, but in the context of Sufi hierarchy is better translated as wise teacher. This title would stick with him for the rest of his life, with modern northern Nigerians often affectionately referring to him as the Sheikhu. And to top it all off, Fodio's eldest son, a boy named Mohamed Bello, commemorated his eighth birthday soon after his father's promotion. Life was good. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you want to support the show, you can do so for free by leaving a review on iTunes or Spotify or any other listening app, or you can just share the show to anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. And if you really want to go all the way in supporting the show, you can join the many people already supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Of course, this episode was made to celebrate our 100th patron, and so the people who supported the show got to vote on the topic of this episode, and they chose the Sokoto Jihad. Some of our top Patreon supporters include the following people. Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tungland, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebalabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyun Olromtimain, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, and Samuel Bado, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.